It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we'll be focusing on American foreign policy from Harry Truman to Donald Trump. My guest this week is Joseph Nye, the former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. For decades, he's been one of the most influential scholars studying US foreign policy, and he's particularly associated with the idea of soft power, the power of persuasion and attraction, rather than brute force. The title of his new book is Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. And the role of morality in foreign policy is the topic of our conversation today. There's no doubt that many American presidents have used highly moralistic language when talking about America's role in the world. Here's John F. Kennedy at his inaugural address in 1961. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Critics of US foreign policy have often argued that this kind of language is hypocritical and that the reality of America's engagement with the world is often much more brutal. By the end of the 1960s, demonstrations against the Vietnam War were taking place all over the world. These kinds of disputes about the gap between moral language and political reality have taken place more recently over the Iraq war. President George W. Bush argued that he was leading a crusade against evil. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. But critics of the Iraq war regard the outcome as deeply immoral, leading to hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. President Barack Obama, who followed Bush into office, was also fond of using moralistic language. My fellow Americans, I am confident we will succeed in this mission because we are on the right side of history. We were founded upon a belief in human dignity. That no matter but Obama's critics have accused him of committing the opposite sin to Bush, of being too passive and failing to intervene to stop mass atrocities in the war in Syria. And now, of course, we have President Trump. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. You've got to treat our country with respect. You've been ripping off our country for many years. The World Trade Organization has ripped off this country. That's when China became an economic power. And by the way, you have world trade and you have world health. When I spoke to Joe Nye on the line from the United States, 
I asked him first about Trump. Is the current president unusual in his frank lack of interest in the morality of American foreign policy? Well, we've had many amoral or immoral presidents. I would cite Richard Nixon among the 14 that uh, I studied in my book for the period after 1945, but none is amoral or immoral as Trump. You know, take the issue of lying. Every president has lied. Franklin Roosevelt lied. But there's a big difference between the amount of lying that Trump does. For example, the Washington Post calculated in the first thousand days in office, Trump had told something like 15,000 lies. The trouble with that is it debases the currency, destroys the sense of trust. So while he's not unique in lying, he is unique in the extent to which he lies. And as physicists will tell you, sometimes changes in quantity can make changes in quality. So, for example, if temperatures drop below 32 degrees, water is still water, but it has a very different quality to it. And uh, I would say that's Trump. He's not unique in the sense that you can find examples of immoral behavior in some of his predecessors, but you can't find anybody who's carried it to the extremes that he has. And it also strikes me that presentationally, he's, I think, very unusual, maybe unique, in the sense that he doesn't attempt to argue that the United States is a moral actor and a more moral actor than other countries. There was that famous incident where somebody, I think, said to him on television, but hasn't Putin killed a lot of people? And he said, yeah, but let me tell you, we've killed a lot of people as well. So he doesn't set up the US as an exemplar of moral behavior. I think that's right. I mean, certainly the Americans have engaged in a lot of immoral behavior. And just ask a Mexican what they think of American policy in the 19th century, for example. But there's also a constant strand in American thought, sometimes hypocritical, but sometimes real, of standing for certain values, so liberal values, for example. And Trump really doesn't spend any effort on that, doesn't care that much about it. And the net result is that if standing for values tends to make your country more attractive, or what I call provide soft power, the power of attraction rather than coercion or payment, Trump couldn't care less about soft power. And his amorality basically has hurt American soft power. The polls show that uh, American soft power declined considerably in the Trump years. So he's different in that sense. Yeah. And yet, uh, obviously, not all American presidents before him have espoused a moral foreign policy in different ways. And, you know, one of the interesting things in the book is the way you chart the different approaches. But broadly speaking, I guess you have a camp of very idealistic presidents, at least rhetorically, people like Woodrow Wilson and John F. Kennedy, and then more cynical presidents like a Richard Nixon. And one of the arguments that the cynics make is that the idealists may intend good, as when Kennedy says, we'll bear any burden to support liberty, but that they often create more trouble along the way. How do you assess that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, there's a difference between moralism and morality. Moralism means 
preachiness about moral values. What I try to argue in the book is that to judge morality, you have to look not only at intentions, but also at the means that are used and the consequences that an action has. Woodrow Wilson certainly had good intentions. Uh, He talked about very fine changes. He didn't have the means to carry them out. And some of the reaction against his efforts, particularly in the 1930s with American extreme isolationism, were bad consequences of his action. Compare that to Kennedy. Kennedy talked about uh, very moral issues. In practice, he was much more prudent and realistic than that. If you take the case of Vietnam, Kennedy got us to the stage of having 16,000 American troops in Vietnam as advisors. He nonetheless resisted the idea of the Americans having combat troops there. George Bundy, who was his national security advisor, later was in the same role for Johnson, uh, said he thinks Kennedy would have got out in 65 if he'd been reelected rather than assassinated. And Johnson, of course, did the opposite. Uh, Johnson escalated the American presence to 565,000 American troops and obviously made them combat troops. The net effect of that was about a little over 150 Americans died while Kennedy was president, died in Vietnam. Under Johnson, though, you're getting up to tens of thousands. So in that sense, Kennedy had the rhetoric of good intentions, but he also had a sense of prudence that went with it. And we talk about Kennedy and Johnson's role in getting America into Vietnam. Now, the president and his advisor who got America out of Vietnam, albeit very messily, were Nixon and Kissinger. And Kissinger's still around. He's still a figure that fascinates people. You must have known him as a colleague at Harvard. My professor on my general examination. (laughs) (laughs) So you go back a long way. Yeah. But a lot of people ever since have said, well, in some sense, Kissinger was not a very American figure. He was, a, you know, still has a German accent and all that, but that because he was so suspicious of the role of morality and foreign policy and has been criticized ever since for that. Well, that's true. Henry certainly had a common view among European emigres to the U.S., such as Hans Morgenthau and others, that the Americans were too moralistic and that that's what got them into trouble. They needed more realism. And that, of course, was not just the European emigres. George Kennan, who was very much American, born and bred, similarly had a very critical view of Wilsonian idealism and moralism. But it's worth noticing a couple of things. One is that Kennan, by 1991, revised his view of Wilson, said maybe he had been too critical of him. And Henry actually has increasingly talked about the importance of legitimacy and values for a stable world order, that realism alone is essential, but not sufficient. And Neil Ferguson, a friend and colleague now at Stanford, calls Kissinger an idealist. It's a little bit of a stretch, but there's something in it that Kissinger basically brought in the values component more as he matured. I mean, I guess that also he would, I would imagine, have argued, and maybe that's the point that Ferguson is making, that the end goal of his foreign policy was deeply moral. It was to preserve peace. But that to do that, 
you needed a kind of amoral power politics and a balance of power. And in fact, the moralism that sought to right all the ills of the world might lead to other tragedies. Is that a fair summary? I think that's very true. I mean, there's some validity in that position. I think that if you bring it back to the Vietnam case in particular, Nixon and Kissinger knew they were going to lose in Vietnam. You can see their internal conversations about that. And what they were looking for was what they called a decent interval between when they pulled out American troops and when Hanoi took over South Vietnam. And that decent interval turned out to be worth two years. And they basically killed 22,000 Americans or sacrificed 22,000 Americans and God knows how many Vietnamese to produce what was basically a two years of face saving. Now, I suppose that Kissinger would argue, well, that was necessary for our credibility in the Cold War. On the other hand, I think there were other options that could have been less costly for American credibility. So it was a hard trade-off. What we know is if we thought in terms of checkers, uh, we would have seen red, black, red, black, that Russian power would balance Chinese power, Chinese power would balance Vietnamese power, which would balance Cambodian power, and the Americans would come out of this a lot better uh, without having lost a single soldier if they thought in terms of nationalism rather than communism as the key dominating factor in East Asia. Kissinger also wrote, I think one of his books was on nuclear weapons and foreign policy, and the period you're writing about is the nuclear age which raises all sorts of interesting moral questions. Do you think it's possible for there to be a moral decision to drop a nuclear weapon? I think it's very hard to imagine, but I can imagine some. For example, if you have a confrontation in which the alternative is that you will wind up with major war and you say, I will attack, let's take one of these artificial islands in the South China Sea, you're going to kill no civilians. You're going to have a massive demonstration effect. You could say that that was a signaling use of nuclear weapons, possibly moral. On the other hand, very risky. But I can give you far-fetched examples like that. But in practice, one of the great problems for the nuclear age is how do you reconcile the fact that full-scale use of nuclear weapons would be highly immoral And yet, on the other hand, if you don't have some prospect that nuclear weapons could be used, you're not going to get deterrence. And that is something that presidents since Truman have wrestled with. In fact, I think the most interesting cases in the 14 presidents I look at the book was Harry Truman and how quickly he came to his views on nuclear weapons. People always point out that he dropped atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was pretty much in the cards before he became president. They don't remember that there was a third bomb and that when the military asked him about it, he said, no, we're not going to kill that many more women and children. And even more important, five years later, when he was losing the Korean War, MacArthur, General MacArthur, came to him and said, if you allow me to drop 25 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities, I can win this for you. Alternatively, it's going to destroy your presidency and be a stalemate. And Truman said, no, we're not going to kill that anymore with the children. 
So Truman, when people say the moral views of a president don't matter, I mean, imagine if Truman had made that decision differently and that instead of a nuclear taboo today, we wound up with nuclear weapons being treated as normal warfighting weapons. It'd be a very different looking world. So the cynics who say morals don't matter have got to answer that one. What about the overlap between personal and political morality, which I guess could bring us up to Bill Clinton? who was attacked, indeed impeached, for having an affair with an intern with Monica Lewinsky. Many of his supporters said, well, you know, what he does in his private life has no bearing on his conduct as president. What do you think of that argument? Well, it's fascinating because it's a very American story. I mean, I remember talking to a French friend at the time when uh, at Mitterrand's funeral, uh, not only his wife, but his mistress, an illegitimate daughter appeared at the grave and nobody, one of my French friends thought that was odd police. In the United States, there's a much more puritanical attitude toward sexual behavior. I think the question is, when does the personal behavior, in this case, sexual transgressions, which otherwise can remain between the president and his wife, when does that affect his political role? And they can affect it in two ways, by distraction, by opening security dangers, and by setting an example which is deleterious to the presidency. I think the complaint about Clinton was the argument that he lied in the process of trying to defend himself. Uh, That was one of the key features in the impeachment. But it's also worth noting that after he came through the impeachment trial, his popularity returned fairly quickly. Fascinating to compare that with John F. Kennedy, who lived in an earlier age where the press was more respectful. Kennedy actually did some things which were very bad for security, such as entertaining in the White House the mistress of the boss of the mob, or bringing into the White House for sexual pleasures an East German spy. So in some ways, Kennedy took greater risks Some of them probably had greater security implications, but he lived in an age where the press was more tolerant. Coming close up to date, what do you make of Obama? I mean, one of my favorite quotes about him, unfortunately I can't remember who said it, was that was said of Obama, I think he's a realist, but he feels bad about it. In other words, he was a sort of Kissingerian in his sense about needing to accommodate yourself to power. But he was clearly uncomfortable with that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Sometimes, if you look at Obama's statements and talk to people who work close with him, the president he probably admired most was George H.W. Bush, the first Bush. And the senior Bush was a man who was devoted to duty, was not very flamboyant in style. He said himself he didn't do the vision thing. But he combined certain ideals with prudence. And the net effect was a combination which worked very effectively. After all, he ended the Cold War with Germany united inside NATO and not a shot being fired. And in the Gulf War, he had the sense to stop and not get into Baghdad and try to rule Baghdad. Obama admired this. He kept good relations with Stokoff, who was, of course, Bush's national security advisor. And I think in that sense, he was part realist and part idealist. But it's worth noticing that even George H.W. Bush had a touch of Wilsonianism. When you read his memoirs with Spokoff, 
Bush was not a Kissingerian realist. He had a large element of prudence to him, but he did care about some of these larger value questions. I think Obama admired that, but he got a hand dealt to him, which was pretty hard to uh, apply that. First, he had the great economic crisis, uh, 2008-2009, and then he had the uh, so-called Arab Spring revolutions of 2011, which dealt in problems like Egypt and Libya and Syria, and there were no easy answers to any of those. So I think Obama wanted to have it both ways. He wanted to bend the arc of history in the direction of ideals, but he also was trying to follow the first Bush in terms of prudence. Okay, to finish then, let's come back to the present day. You've made famous this concept of soft power, and you obviously think it's a very important component of America's power in the world. Given your belief that Trump is squandering this particular asset, how much is at stake in the coming presidential election? Do you think if Trump were to win a second term, that the world's image of the United States would be permanently changed? I think it has already been changed, but I think that it's still recoverable. Remember in 1970, during the Vietnam War, people were marching through the streets throughout the world opposing the United States government's policies. What's interesting, though, is that they were not singing the communist international, they were singing Martin Luther King's We Shall Overcome, which illustrates that a lot of America's soft power, the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, comes from our civil society, from the nature of who we are as a people and how we organize ourselves. And the government often squanders or wastes that soft power, as it did in Vietnam or as Trump is doing today with his policies. So if Trump is a four-year president, I think the chance that American civil society will turn out to be more important as a base for the restoration of American attractiveness remains plausible. If Trump's an eight-year president, it's going to be hard because he keeps on doing things which essentially are undercutting the attractiveness of the country. So I do think this election is going to be an important one. I don't think it's necessarily impossible for the United States to recover, but I think you've already seen a fair amount of damage. I mean, the COVID-19 crisis has shown a dismal failure of leadership in the United States. First, Trump turned to denial, and then we turned to blaming others, now trying to shift blame. Uh, fortunately, the Chinese were equally abysmal. Xi Jinping's first efforts were denial and then shifting blame. But imagine that Trump had had the vision of a uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower and called an emergency session of the Security Council or of G20 and had announced a major new fund to help poor countries cope with the COVID crisis where they lacked the infrastructure to do so. And it appealed to this out of humanitarianism and out of self-interest, a little bit like a Marshall Plan. It's good for us, but it's good for them as well. American soft power would be enormously strengthened by this. On the other hand, I can't imagine Trump doing it. And that's a good example in the current crisis of why morals matter. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. But thank you very much indeed to you, Joe Knight. 
That was Professor Joseph Nye ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, which is a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and workplaces. Visit ft.com slash Rachman Review COVID to sign up for free access for 30 days. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps.